a stranger with a gun came upon two teens taking pictures under a rising full moon. But violence is only the beginning of this story. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are. And this is a big one. I'm Amy Donaldson, and I've spent my career talking about how lives are undone by violence. The Letter is a podcast about how lives are remade. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason. I'm Jason Lee along with Amy Donaldson. Today we're joined by Dr. Angela Dunn, the Utah State Epidemiologist. It's her job to study and investigate patterns and causes of infectious diseases for the, public, uh, for the good of our public health. And uh, I'm very grateful uh, that Dr. Dunn, that you are able to join us today. Thank you. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks so much, Jason. Uh, she and I have something in common. We were named uh, by the Public Relations Society of America, the uh, Utah chapter, Co-Communicators of the Year. And, and that, uh, for me, it was talking about race this year. But for Dr. Dunn, she has been spending all year long uh, trying to help us, you know, uh, protect us from ourselves, which we fight tooth and nail, especially if you consider how many people just don't want to wear masks or it took so long to get people to understand the idea of that. I want to uh, ask you, Dr. Dunn, when this first started taking place, I want to go back earlier this year, let's say, uh, you know, like I said, January, February, uh, what were your first thoughts when, before everything kind of blew up and, and it became a full-blown p- pandemic? Yeah, we were certainly bracing for that first case identified in Utah, knowing that it would be the start of of some chaos here in the state. Um, I remember when, when we got the first lab notification of a positive COVID case, then I think we were calling it novel coronavirus. Novel coronavirus, right. right. Yep. And um, I literally looked at the lab and dropped to my knees and was like, oh, crap, here we go. And that was the start of it. I mean, we were preparing for it, but it's always still a shock when, when you see that first positive from a lab report. Now, how long have you been, uh, been an epidemiologist? I want to ask you that real quick. Oh, um, so professionally, I would say I graduated from, I finished residency in, in 2013, um, but was doing epidemiology from before I even went to med school. So 2004 um, is when I really started getting my feet wet in terms of understanding uh, the determinants and reasons why disease spreads among certain populations more than others. Dr. Dunn, can I ask you why, uh, you know, what drew you to first epidemiology, but then secondly, public health? Oh, sure. Well, public health was my first. So I actually, um, you know, when you when you apply to med school, you have to write a personal statement. And in my personal statement, I said, I am going to medical school so I can be a clinical voice in public health and health policy. For whatever reason, in my, you know, 22 year old mind, I thought that there needed to be more clinicians in health policy and public health. And I was going to do just that. And I can't tell you how many people told me, you know, there's a lot of cheaper and quicker ways to get into public health than going to med school. (laughs) Um, But as any, you know, 22 year old, you know, you don't listen to anyone else. And so um, I went into it because I really felt that it was an opportunity for me to give a voice to people who who are populations that tend to be ignored by policymakers um, or, or aren't given the 
loudness of a voice that they deserve. Um, and so that was my whole reason for going into it. And it is the, other than my marriage and my children, it's like the one thing that has stuck in my life. Um, I tend to change a lot. Um, but my passion for my career and my family are the two things that haven't changed. <laughs> so how long have you been the state epidemiologist? Um, so I've only been the state epidemiologist for, for a couple of years. I actually came to Utah as a fellow with the Centers for Disease Control um, in 2014. So I've been with the state for six and a half years, um, two of those as a fellow, about two of those as the deputy state epidemiologist, and then the last two years as the state epidemiologist. So good timing. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so uh, the other thing that I think is really fascinating is um, just uh, just give us some insight. And in public health seems to me to be chronically underfunded and really super easy to overlook until you have a crisis. Um, and and this is obviously something you know uh, once in a century type of thing. But what kinds of things other things are you concerned with normally? Oh, gosh. I mean, and you, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, public health is really good at operating with really low budget and low personnel and being really creative. Um, and um, we always say, you know, we're doing our job if nobody knows we're here and nobody knows we exist because that means we're preventing things. And that's a big, big piece of what we do is try to prevent thing, bad health problems from happening. So before COVID, other than outbreaks, right? I don't know if you guys remember E-Valley, but the tainted THC carts with vitamin E, that happened right before COVID hit. So we always have some exciting new outbreak going on. Um, but in general, we're looking at kind of the biggest determinants of health, right? Um, education, poverty, um, things that, that lead to heart disease and cancer. Um, those are the biggest health issues we have going on in our state. Um, and they're definitely not as sexy as COVID or THC carts, um, but they are the bread and butter um, of public health and in impact, at least before COVID, impact the majority of our population here. When this all, again, this, this is my, uh, I, I think that's true. I, I remember other things. I remember Ebola. I remember SARS when it was in Canada and other kinds of things, but they, they always seem to be people, bird flu, swine flu. We, we, we seem to catch those in a way that was, I don't know, we, we didn't get uh, so far down the road that it became a, a, a global pandemic necessarily. What, what mistakes did we make that uh, caused us to get to where we are now with uh, COVID-19? You know, a lot of it just has to do with the way the virus is spread. Um, so first you're dealing with a virus that's never been you know, discovered before and it was just discovered a year ago. Um, and there were a lot of assumptions made at the beginning of the outbreak um, such as, if you remember, we didn't think it was spread by asymptomatic individuals. So that put all of our focus on identifying people with symptoms only. Then we learned that it is spread by asymptomatic individuals, which changes the way you address a pandemic or the spread of a disease. The other thing is we all um, at the beginning thought it was spread just by droplets. So, you know, by actual coughing or sneezing. And now we know it's airborne. So by singing, by talking, you know, you don't have to have actual severe symptoms to spread the disease. And again, that makes it a lot easier to spread to a lot of people and changes the way we approach the pandemic. So just the evolving nature of what we know um, allowed the disease to spread pretty robustly um, at the beginning of this outbreak. And I, I mean, I can go on, but I, I think I'll, I'll say one more point other than that. So I would say our policies and this is kind of as a as a nation. Mm -hmm. um, at the beginning of this, 
I don't know if you guys remember back in March, um, we only had you know a handful of cases and no community spread, meaning all of our cases had gotten it from somewhere else. And there was a huge push to shut down schools. We had, again, we had less than 10 cases and no community spread and people were freaking out and wanted schools closed because you know, East Coast and Midwest schools have already closed and we closed the schools. Well, we don't tolerate that kind of restriction really long, right? So we asked people to change their whole lives in the spring when we didn't have a lot of cases and fall comes around. We've got a lot more cases, but people don't, you know, you can't stick with it that long, right? So I would say it's that balance of, you know, trying not to cede to the pressure to take severe action early on and kind of hold off and implement those policies later is when you really need it. Um, I mean, that's a struggle for everyone, but I think we did implement some restrictions pretty early on that maybe didn't have, weren't as necessary at the time given our limited spread. When we come back, I want to uh, continue down this discussion because I, I would like to understand what it will take to make people, uh, you know, get to the point where they take it seriously enough that we can see the light at the end of the tunnel, that one day we can actually return to some uh, sense of normalcy in our lives. We are speaking today with Dr. Angela Dunn. She is the Utah State epidemiologist. We're talking about COVID-19, as you would imagine. I'm Jason Lee, along with Amy Donaldson. This is the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason. Welcome back to the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason. I am Jason Lee, along with Amy Donaldson. And we are talking today with Dr. Angela Dunn, the Utah State epidemiologist. And uh, she's been kind of schooling us on what the initial... It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Circumstances were when we, we found out, uh, you know, coronavirus was, was a thing. And, I, you know, Dr. Dunn, you were mentioning how in, at first we closed down schools. And to be honest with you, I, I would, and I, I'm a... I have a finance degree, so I'm a statistics guy, and I was using numbers to say that it didn't seem that bad. And honestly, most of the summer, I really thought that, at least in Utah. But then spring, I mean, fall comes along, and we just, I don't know what happened, uh, other than school started. People just, they had this uh, COVID fatigue, and it just, it, it has gotten worse in such a way that I, I, am, I am very disappointed, but I'm very worried still about... Our, our, our sense of public health and our humanity and not taking enough precautions to continue to have thousands and thousands of cases each and every day. What, what, what can we do? Gosh, when you figure that out, let me know. I mean, <laughs> changing human behavior is something that we in public health try to do, you know, all the time, right? From smoking cessation to um, using, uh, you know, biking for transportation, you know, whatever it is, we try to change behavior. Um, but doing it on this kind of mass scale and having to do it immediately and sometimes mandate it has caused, you know, a lot of problems with some people. Um, but you're right. I mean, at this point, you know, yesterday we got a briefing out from um, our hospitals and it was 
you know, people always use the word sobering and I wish I had a different word than that because I'm kind of sick of using that word, but it was really um, sobering to hear that our own University of Utah had to request refrigeration for decedent bodies because they didn't have room for them in their hospital. Um, this is worse now than it ever has been in this state. And we now more than ever need people to adhere to public health recommendations and, and try to appeal to their sensibilities and sense of humanity to, to help their neighbor during this hard time. I mean, we're, we're, we literally have the light at the end of the tunnel with the vaccine, right? Um, mm -hmm. We don't want to be that state that gives up too early and all of a sudden sees a huge spike in cases with unnecessary deaths. Like, let's just keep pushing for a few more months. Um, but it's tough. It's really yeah. tough. I mean, I think one of the difficulties I've, as I've watched this, and I, I actually was covering this when we had just a few passengers on cruise ships from Utah. Mm -hmm. um, and that's when I got involved and started looking at it. And, and I had no idea the viral education I would get <laughs> just, just, just trying to write about it. How difficult is it to communicate a message or talk about how viruses spread and what people can do to mitigate spread um, and why you should do that when none of us, we don't have anything to relate it to. We keep saying, well, is it like the flu? Is it like a cold? How difficult is that? You know, it's been so hard, but there are a couple things that made it harder than usual. One is that what we know about the virus seems to have changed every week. Um, it slowed down a little <laughs> bit, but at that beginning stage, I mean, we went from knowing nothing and then having to get a, give advice to people based on really limited information. Um, so that changing all the time was really hard. And then of course the politicization of this has just mm -hmm. made it increasingly difficult because I feel like no matter what facts I say, and that's all I ever do, right? All I do is give facts. What are facts? What are those things? Now that's just, you know, that's just the liberal agenda. That's what that is. Exactly. Right. So I feel like no matter what I say, it gets twisted into some sort of um, political strife. Um, so that's made it really tough. But I have to say, you know, we go back to our basic principles and finding champions within and leaders within the communities where we're trying to influence um, is is really the way to try to get the message across. I remember when Amy was uh, out, she was reporting on the fact that people were outside of your house. And that was the day I just lo I really lost it. I, I thought to myself, this woman has spent her life trying to keep us safe and, and so we can get out of this. And they're rabble-rousers going to, gonna, you know, block traffic, just be noisy, just, I can't use the word a-hole on this story. Uh, so. <laughs> I, I just could not believe how, how terrible some people are. And you've had to deal with this, you know, constantly. And I, I, I applaud you for not, you know, uh, you know, being as angry as I was. But as, as you see this and you realize that people don't, they, there's still people who don't believe that, that they, they, they feel like they're, we're, they're being imposed upon for something that is not that serious, despite the fact that, uh, how many deaths have we had in Utah so far? How many, how many total Death, deaths? Yes. 1,140 Utahns have so, lost their uh, lives as of uh, today. Has, has lost their, have lost their lives, and yet people still are you know, adamantly against uh, you know, doing what's asked of them to, you know, save our public health in terms of wearing masks and keeping distance, and not having large gatherings. Uh, is, is this just something we deal with until finally we get the vaccine and then people are able to have to go back to the way they were? You know, I think the first comment I, I want to make is that I, I don't, I don't think the people who, you know, came to protest at my house or any other elected officials 
house are necessarily terrible, so I want that on the record. I you do don't, but I do. Okay, it's okay. <laughs> I think they're misguided. I mean, honestly, um, government leadership and state and national leadership, um, you know, has failed them in a way. You know, it's our job to get information across and and help people meet people where they're at. And they were fed misinformation and lies and. And I think that's up to kind of elected officials um, nationally to really take that on and and take responsibility for some of that. Um, but but yes, people shouldn't be visiting <laughs> private homes <laughs> right. of yeah. of public servants. I, that is totally wrong. Um, and and in terms of like going back to normal, I mean, we we have a long ways. I mean, if you think people don't want to wear masks, vaccines are going to be a lot harder sell. Um, they are traditionally <laughs> right. Yes. Um, and. That is our key to keeping Utah safe and preventing deaths and unnecessary illness. So we have a, a long road ahead of us. I am really hopeful, though, for you know September of 2021. That's kind of what I, I think, will get have a really clear understanding there of kind of how many people are willing to step up and and take the vaccination and will it be enough to have herd immunity. What are, what are some of the things that have surprised you throughout this process? I mean, I think it's interesting that like Dr. Fauci and, and yourself, I mean, I actually, uh, you know, the t-shirts that were sold, uh, we love Dr. Dunn, you know, <laughs> yes. I mean, there's a few, like there's some aspect of, of, of the epidemiologists and the public health workers who've stepped up and have kind of been a voice of, of reason and, and just giving information to people. For some reason, they've become kind of rock star heroes to us in a way. And I noticed Dr. Fauci's one of the, he's like more trusted than, than me or the CDC. <laughs> um, are you, what are some other things that, I mean, are you surprised by that? And also some other things that have kind of taken you by surprise throughout this last year? In about a minute. Sure. I am completely surprised that people know I exist and who I am and where I live <laughs> um, and what I look like. I get recognized a lot and it's crazy. And I honestly can't wait for that to end. Um, but um, I think the other surprising thing is just um, how much politics are influencing health. Um, and I always knew that was there, but never before has public health been in the spotlight at, as it has in the past year. Um, and that just leads me to want to have stronger relationships with our elected officials moving forward so we can be in unison from the beginning of, of the next response. You know, I, I'm so grateful that you've been able to do this with us. I know that I want to, I would like to ask you a little bit more coming into the next segment because the one thing we haven't gotten to is the people who have been most uh, impacted by it and those oftentimes, and I guess it's always the way it is, those who are of low income and a minority status and that it, it's really become a, a major issue in that way as well. You're listening to The Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason. Welcome back to the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason. I'm Jason Lee, along with Amy Donaldson. Today we're joined by Dr. Angela Dunn, the Utah State epidemiologist. And Dr. Dunn, I know uh, you've kind of covered a lot of ground here. Uh, as as co-communicators of the year, and by the way, I'm always proud to have be uh, mentioned in the same breath as you, I, um, I talk a lot about race and, and just how it's been um, impacting life in general in Utah and, and around the country. A lot of that was uh, spurred by... Uh, the protest that happened after uh, George Floyd, but in in and we, when we talk about COVID nineteen, so much of the impact has been felt by those of uh, 
who are minorities and who are of the, or, you know, the lower social strata. Can you talk a little bit about how that uh, manifests itself and, and the potential for continued uh, suffering if we, if we don't do something about this? Yeah, uh, this is something I'm really passionate about. Um, and just a plug, I did a TEDx Salt Lake City talk on this and it should be on YouTube soon. Um, you know, what's so fascinating about this outbreak is that in Utah, as Amy was saying, right, it was started by people who were on international cruises or were here for ski vacation. And we actually have a, an index that measures socioeconomic status. And for the first month or so, it was all high socioeconomic status individuals in Utah who were getting infected. And then over the next several months, uh, the demographics of cases just changed rapidly. And it, as we know now, the burden shifted um, to our communities of color, um, our areas that have lower education and lower annual incomes and more individuals living in one household, people who have to go to work physically in order to earn money. Mm -hmm. um, it really highlighted kind of those health disparities that, that have always been present here, um, but now have this huge magnifying glass on them because of COVID. Amy? Yeah, I, uh, I guess I have many thoughts on this. I, is the public health system, has it done a good enough job leading up to this or, or are you learning anything coming out of this? that um that could provide a better safety net to communities sure. so i would say it's not that's i guess that's the limitation right it's not just the public health system um, when we're talking about social determinants of health it requires education transportation workforce services um, you know general policy in order to protect communities so that they're not vulnerable in the next crisis we're talking things like paid sick leave um, access to quality health care um, making sure that your workplace is safe um, and, and following standards that way. And these policies can be stronger in our state. And um, I think we have a great opportunity now with a lot of momentum to actually create something good out of COVID and, and start advocating for policies that can protect our most vulnerable populations from the next crisis. Because, you know, as COVID has shown us, right, it, the, the virus isn't going to just stop at the borders of, of a neighborhood just because it changes, you know, race, ethnicity or language spoken. The virus actually ends up spreading everywhere and impacting us all. And so for those people who don't, you know, their heart's not bleeding for, for the less fortunate, um, it, it protects us as individuals to ensure that all of the populations in Utah are more secure going into the next yeah. pandemic. So I, I really think we're in a unique opportunity and um, hoping to work with policymakers to, to find some good out of this and, and just better secure all of our communities for the next pandemic or crisis that we're going to face. Are we going to have another one? Yeah, of course. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I mean I, when you say, of course, this is the first time this kind of thing has ever happened that I can recall. I'm 55. I don't, I don't remember anything like this. Yeah. You know, I think when we, when we think of crises, I mean, obviously, I think we're all going to think about earthquakes. That's going to be our next big thing, right? Yeah. Um, but we constantly have smaller outbreaks going on that impact our most vulnerable communities as well, whether it's, it's measles or um, a foodborne outbreak um, or a natural disaster. It's unfortunately always the same communities um, and we need to do better as society to protecting them. I, I think there's actually been some innovations that have been pretty creative and you guys have developed on the fly uh, the state lab sending the testing unit the mobile testing unit down to the Navajo Nation. Um, 
I don't know how many people's lives were saved by that effort, but it, it was pretty, it was a pretty impressive thing to see happen. And then I noticed right away they started sending them to elder care centers and long-term care facilities. And I just wondered if you've seen any other innovations or things that have developed out of this that we can maybe feel good about? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. A huge piece that we really made more robust is our community health worker program. Um, this is going to seem so obvious probably to all of you, but this wasn't part of our public health infrastructure um, because things like community health workers just never get prioritized with funding. But now we have public health partners that are in the communities, from the communities, and helping their own people understand what COVID is and how to best protect themselves. So it's a trusted voice. Um, mm -hmm. And that's definitely true with the testing and quarantine and isolation, but it's going to be even more important with vaccinations. And we've been able to show um, those that fund us that that is an important piece of public health infrastructure that needs to stay and will be useful beyond COVID. Um, so that's a, that's a huge piece that I think um, will benefit Utah moving forward. Um, and I think kind of some other really cool innovations. I mean, as, as much as there was rocky roads between um, the relationships between government and the tech industry and the other businesses at the beginning of this, um, we all now know each other and we know what we can bring to the table. So I am confident that those partnerships moving forward will only serve to better the health of Utahns. Do you ever worry about uh, that, and, and maybe this is true, but that we, that we don't learn the lessons from this one and so that we might actually repeat them uh, you know, at some time in the future? Isn't that what we're really good at doing as humans? Um, yeah. I, I'm almost positive if you go back to the H1N1 um, outbreak, which of course was a much smaller scale than what we're dealing with now, um, the same pattern happened in terms of impacting those of high socioeconomic status first and then ultimately the biggest burden was was borne by the those um, under-resourced communities. And so, you know, with transition of leadership, with, you know, the next, the next thing is gonna come up on people's radar after COVID. And unfortunately, I think there is a risk that, that people will forget everything we've learned. And um, we won't have as much gained um, in a positive way after COVID, but I think if we get just something done, that's better than nothing, right? No, it's true, I, I, but I do worry that, you know, uh, just as Americans, we get so used to having our lives be, you know, first world that we, we take it for granted. And this is one of those times when, at least in, in my lifetime, it is, this is uh, something that I hope that I never have to do again. And I, I hope that my grandson never has to uh, experience anymore be, because it, um, it's scary. It really is because I, I, I saw people lose their humanity. <laughs> And, and do, you know, crazy things. And, and you know, life is hard enough. I, I, I certainly don't want there to be, uh, you know, out of this be death and uh, despair from it. And that's, that's I guess that's what, what I worry about. Yeah, absolutely. We'll come back and finish our discussion. Today we're talking with Dr. Angela Dunn. She is the Utah State Epidemiologist. And I'm Jason Lee. She's Amy Donaldson. This is Voices of Reason.
We are back with the Loudbound Project's Voices of Reason. I'm Jason Lee, along with Amy Donaldson. Today, speaking with Dr. Angela Dunn, Utah State epidemiologist. And uh, Dr. Dunn, I, again, I want to say we appreciate having you on today and uh, discussing this very, very important topic. But uh, Amy, uh, you, you said you had something you want to ask her about? I'll, I'll ask both of you guys this question. But, uh, you know, I, I watched the first healthcare workers get vaccinated, and I, I found myself crying, which I did not expect. And I wondered, Dr. Dunn, what gives you hope in this moment? So, I mean, definitely the vaccine. That is the immediate gratification we need. It is incredible that honestly, the world came together to develop a vaccine for a brand new virus within a year. That is unheard of. And it's exciting that we were able to do that. And I have to say, even though there were protesters at my house, there was way more good in Utah than bad. I got an outpouring of support, not only from neighbors, but from people that don't even know me. Um, what gives me hope is knowing that the loud voices of negativity are such a minority. Um, and, and I believe we, we are gonna get through this and people are doing their best to try to minimize unnecessary death and illness. And we just gotta keep going for a few more months and then have a huge party where we're all able to hug and dance together. <laughs> yeah, the, the hugging. The, the, I, coo- I, I, the kumbaya. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> well, yeah, we, we want to go back to hugging like we used to. You know, um, Amy, I, I guess hope for me is that, you know, it takes a lot to, uh, the world has been around a long time. And just like when, uh, you know, bad stuff happens, eventually you heal from it and you, you, you know, life goes on. And I think that's that's what's always, I always knew that one day we, we, would be, we would go back outside. We would go back to sporting events. We would go back to uh, backyard barbecues and I can, ha- well, I can have poker night at my house. Will we ever go back, will we ever get to a time where um, public health is not political, Dr. Dunn? Um, my guess is yes. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, give us a couple of years and people, I mean, unfortunately, I think this will something else will pop up and public health will go back to being anonymous. Um, so yeah, I, I do think we'll get there, but hopefully we can keep the good lessons learned from this response um, and, and have it impact public health in a good way moving forward. So you think that uh, people will just uh, go back to taking it for granted again? Cause I always feel like this is one of those uh, wake up moments, isn't it? Maybe you have more hope in humanity than I do, Jason. Oh, yeah. I, <laughs> I mean, we've, I'm just so used to being ignored. <laughs> um, so Welcome to the so club, maybe, sister. Yeah, if I set my expectations low, I can't be disappointed. Yeah, fair <laughs> yeah. enough. That's true. I mean, I, I do think one thing that's really shocked me in the last year is sort of this idea, the undermining of science, like that somehow facts are negotiable. I mean, do you ever look at some of the discussions and say, like, how did we get here? I think it's pretty clear that we got here from our national rhetoric, um, even prior to the pandemic. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm hopeful with 2021, honestly, um, and, and that we can slowly start to unite the country behind what's good for us all. And that's just having trustworthy leaders who present the facts. You know, uh, America's been around a long time and I, I, I as she as uh, Dr. Dunn just said, you know, we will kind of see this as a, a moment in time, you know, just like McCarthyism was, you know, they, they had those uh, committee meetings in the Senate because people, they were thought to be communists and they would ruin their lives then. This is one of those moments we're going to look back on 
the way it was dealt with uh, from a national perspective and realize how uh, wrongheaded we were and and hopefully not have to repeat that again you know and that's that's what gives me hope is that sometimes you have to take some steps back to move forward and even though these people who don't like facts are going to be coming along kicking and screaming if they were impacted by this virus I think they'll know in their heart of hearts that you know they should have listened all along and next time you know they'll they'll tell that to those other people and they become the evangelists rather than the ones trying to uh, you know spew misinformation at least that's what I hope yeah that's a great point I'm with you on that one so is there anything you think that um, what in the next couple of months that we should kind of be on the lookout for uh, in terms of how we go about our lives so that we can continue to make progress rather than go in the other direction Yeah, I think it's really easy for us all to see this vaccine as a beacon of hope and start to relax some of the um, measures we've been adhering to in terms of, you know, keeping our close contacts small, physical distancing and wearing masks. But honestly, now's not the time to do that, especially um, given our high case count still moving in to even colder winter. Um, We just need to keep going. And I do think, you know, in terms of the vaccine, for everybody out there, seek out the information and answers the questions you have. Um, Go to the CDC website, go to the Department of Health website, figure out for yourself um, what's gonna make you comfortable taking that vaccine. Um, We're definitely not gonna force it upon anyone, but I wanna make sure that everyone out there has information at their hands to make the best decision for themselves and their family. And uh, one one more last thing. So when you were, uh, did you ever think that you'd be the communicator of the year? (laughs) <laughs> oh gosh, no. Um, and no, I, it is by chance. And I mean, I have a huge team behind me that tells me what to say. So <laughs> it is, Thank you, Tom um, I just happened to, right. yes, exactly. I just happened to be the face. Um, but it is such an honor to be able to serve the public that way, to be honest with you. Um, I Actually, I'm going to I'm going to interrupt you. I, I'm yeah. going to interrupt you and say you, one thing that I've loved about you is that you don't, you do kind of speak from the heart though you are talking you talk from your knowledge as a doctor and nobody's going to talk you out of that am i wrong that's true no that's (laughs) true and and i do have input on what i say and how i say it um yeah um and so it it is and honestly um and like you said kind of like you guys like you're journalists you're getting the word out to the people and mm-hmm. I find so much more value in that than, you know, doing scientific research that's going to be in a, in a, you know, scientific journal somewhere. That's really important, too. But I prefer to communicate with the masses. So it has been such an honor to be able to do that throughout this pandemic. But I'm sure you'll be happy when you don't have to do it every day. <laughs> oh, man. Honestly, there are days where I just don't want to take a shower, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I, can't, I can't come into work today. That's what so do you, uh, you do that every day um, do you have to prepare yourself every day or is it does it become kind of rote in some way it definitely becomes easier um, especially as the pandemic's got, co- gone on um, because people tend to have the same questions uh, mm-hmm. and I get more comfortable being able to answer them because there's there's less unknown right um, so so it's become easier for sure well listen uh, I want to say again thank you very much for taking the time out of what, what is got to be the most hectic schedule uh, of anybody in uh, in our state for sure, and, and other people you like for, yourself. Thank you for putting yourself in the line of fire for us. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. Uh, join us again thank for the next episode. Thank you for your partnership. 
Join us again for the next episode of the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason. If you have any comments about our show, please contact us via email at vormed at gmail.com or at vorjasonl at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at adonsports and at jasonlee1. Our show's Twitter handle is at vorpodcast. Check out our Facebook page, and you can also find and subscribe to free episodes of our podcast in all the places where you find interesting content. Be sure to review our show as well. We love to get your feedback, and it helps us grow our audience. Until next time, I'm Jason Lee along with Amy Donaldson. When you engage in passionate debate, do your best to keep your dialogue civil. Try to be the voice of reason. Voices of Reason is a production of the Loudmouth Project. It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts.